the Healthcare Real Estate Advisor Podcast. I'm Libby Park, an attorney with Hall Render, the largest healthcare-focused law firm in the country. Today, we will be speaking with John Williams. John is an attorney with Hall Render and based out of our Washington, D.C. office. I consider John a resource on all things healthcare-related at the federal level. Today, we'll talk with John about the post-election outlook for healthcare in the United States. John is a seasoned veteran in the healthcare industry, and he has a great story to tell us today about his career and also what's happening in D.C. John, thanks for joining me today. Uh, great to be with you, Libby. John, before we talk about the post-election outlook, let's talk about your background. Tell us where you're from, where you went to school, and what you aspired to be. Well, uh, born in Indianapolis, Indiana, raised in Galveston, Texas until I was 16 back to Indianapolis where I finished high school uh, and then went to uh, Embry-Riddle University in Daytona Beach, Florida, uh, where I intended to be a commercial airline pilot. When I got out of college uh, in 1992, the airline industry had suffered a number of uh, bankruptcies, uh, Pan Am, Eastern, Midway, uh, had all gone out of business and you couldn't fly, find a flying job. And so uh, I, I ended up sort of looking elsewhere and sort of meandered my way into, into politics. Like, like so many uh, young people before me uh, and, at, and after me, um, somebody said to me, uh, you need to go to work on a political campaign. And so um, I ended up going to work for the mayor of Indianapolis, who at the time was Steve Goldsmith. And my job was to drive Steve around uh, and sort of be what they refer to as his body guy. I, so I did that, bounced around to some other campaigns, uh, did some work at the Indiana State House. And then eventually when Republicans took over the House of Representatives in 1994, subsequent to that, I went to Washington. Again, like, like many before and after me who had done campaign work and then ended up making their way to DC. And so I worked on Capitol Hill uh, as a congressional staffer, mostly at the House Committee on Government Reform and Oversight, where I served as the press secretary, but I also served a policy role for the chairman of the committee. And so in that role, I, I covered issues like Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, and that was my first real, real taste of, uh, of healthcare policy. So then how did you transition into more fully focused um, healthcare work? Well, I, so I went to law school in Washington at night while I lobbied during the day for the Aircraft Owners and Pilots Association. So my parents were thrilled that I was actually using my undergraduate degree for something. Uh -huh. um, and I, it came the point as, for many lawyers uh, where you have to decide where you're going to take the bar exam. And I realized that if I, if I took the bar exam in Virginia where I was living, that I was going to stay in DC probably for the rest of my life. And so I was engaged at the time and, and really in, in transition and use that as the opportunity to, uh, to come back to, to Indiana. And my initial course in Washington at that point had, had kind of run um, and I was ready to go. Uh, and I was sort of done with politics uh, at that point. And so I, I moved back to, to Indianapolis, got married and started at Hall Render. Um, and that would have been 2003. And uh, I started at Hall Render as a litigator doing uh, medical malpractice and other healthcare defense work, largely because that was as far away from politics as I could humanly get myself, which was my desire at that point. But politics is like the mafia um, in that you never really get out. 
And so along the way, um, I did some things like when Mitch Daniels was elected governor of Indiana, I, I ran the transition for the Indiana State Department of Health for Mitch. And we had a Republican mayor in Indianapolis get elected at one point, Greg Ballard, and I helped do the transition of the mayor's office for him. So I stayed active here and there. Um, and then it just so happened that um, about eight and a half years into it, I'd actually made shareholder. Um, and it interestingly coincided with the time that Mitch Daniels was deciding not to run for president of the United States, which a lot of us had expected him to do and had become somewhat invested in that idea. Uh, that coincided with the leadership change at Hall Render um, where John Render retired and Bill Thompson became the chairman, John Ryan became the president and we instituted a growth strategy that happened to include uh, opening an office in Washington. So um, I decided to, uh, to, to take on the task of opening a Washington DC office and uh, dive back into healthcare policy. And that's where I've been ever since. Um, I am learning a lot about you today as well, John, and you have a very interesting background. Um, before we jump into our um, specific healthcare topics, I have a very important question. Do you still fly planes? I do. As a matter of fact, I, I belong to a flying club in Indianapolis and, and still fly somewhere between 30 and, and 50 hours a year. So I, I, that, that, that's one thing that I have, I have not, not given up on. Well, thanks, John, for sharing about your background. Let's jump into some topics that uh, we would like to cover today. So as of the recording of this podcast, Joe Biden has been declared the winner of the election and is poised to become the 46th president of the U.S. Uh, can you tell us what the atmosphere is like in D.C. with this recent news? <laughs> um, I keep telling myself that I'm not going to use the word uh, unprecedented anymore. Um, but, you know, it's 2020 and all that, so it's kind of hard not to. The atmosphere in D.C. today is really unlike any other in history um, because of the pandemic. For people who do what I do, being on Capitol Hill, meeting with members and staff, being in, in congressional offices and, and hearing rooms um, is, is vital, but Capitol Hill has been closed to the public for months, I think since March. Um, and DC as a whole um, has, has almost become a ghost town, much like New York. So um, DC is unlike any other time that, it, that, that anyone can really remember. Um, as far as the transition goes, um, on the one hand, you, you've got an incoming administration um, that's doing all the, the typical things that an incoming administration does, um, making cabinet appointments, making White House staff appointments, uh, putting things in place to take office in January. And then on the other hand, you've got an outgoing administration um, that's refusing to a large extent to accept the results of the election, which again is unprecedented. Um, so you've got that playing out on, on one side and then on the other side, you've got um, a president-elect Biden who's doing all the things that you traditionally do to, to put a new administration in place. And can you talk a little bit more about that? What is president-elect Biden um, doing in terms of naming heads of agencies and what's the outlook for that in the coming months? Um, yeah, I mean, that's gonna be their focus over the, over the coming months. Um, you know, I, I, what most people don't realize um, is that it's not just cabinet jobs, right? The secretary of HHS or, or secretary of transportation or the White House chief of staff that, that have to be um, filled, out, filled when there's a change of administration. 
Um, there's also 4,000 of what we call Schedule Cs or what are known as Schedule Cs that are political appointments in every federal agency. And all of those positions have to be filled. And this is what makes a change of administration so significant. And we're talking about people um, like the general counsel of CMS or the chief of staff of the FDA. These are people who do not have to go through Senate confirmation. They're merely appointed uh, by the incoming administration, but they have an enormous power. So, you know, I always kind of find it funny when I hear somebody say about a presidential election, you know, I, 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 I vote for the person, I don't vote for the party. Okay, I, I, I get that, I, I do, but the problem with that is that that person is responsible for appointing 4,000 people from their party to run the executive branch of the federal government. So you really are voting um, for the party when you vote for, for a person. Um, but as far, again, as Biden is concerned, um, I, I found it also interesting that he's, he's already appointed Secretary of State. Um, he's appointed Janet Yellen at, at Treasury Secretary. So he's, he's focused initially on foreign policy and, and economic policy. And the reason that's significant is whenever there's an incoming administration, they signal their priorities by which announcements of positions that they make first. And the biggest issue that Democrats ran on in this last election, whether it was for president or for Congress or Senate was healthcare. And then we're in the middle of a pandemic. And so I find it kind of interesting that they've led with other areas, other policy areas instead of healthcare. Let's jump to another topic. Uh, on November 20th, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid, CMS, and the Office of Inspector General released long-awaited final rules under the federal Stark anti-kickback and civil monetary penalties laws. What's been the response in Washington to the re release of these final rules? The response has been great, and, and we're thrilled um, you know, as a law firm for that. One of the first things that we did uh, when we opened our office in Washington, D.C., was undertake an effort to reform Stark. And eight years ago, we would travel to Capitol Hill to have meetings with congressional staff and say, you know, we're, hi, we're here to talk about the Stark Law. We would get this deer in headlights look um, because Stark, as everyone who's probably listening to this knows, is so convoluted and it's so confusing. And so, you know, in in the time since then, we've, we've had some success um, in terms of getting some changes to start made um, from a regulatory perspective in the 2016 position fee schedule. Um, we, had, we were successful in getting some changes there as far as the writing requirements are concerned and some other technical issues. Um, and then we were able to get those changes codified into the statute subsequently to that in 2018. So Stark is something we've been working on for a long time. And when this administration came in and Seema Verma became um, the administrator of CMS, because she's from Indiana and so many of us have known her for so long, um, we jumped at the opportunity to, to encourage her to take on uh, Stark reform. And so she in fact asked us to prepare uh, recommendations for her on, on what uh, they should consider pursuing. And so we did. And those things included things like uh, defining commercial reasonableness or what it means to take into account. Um, and, you know, even creating a rebuttable presumption for fair market value. So we were thrilled to see um, 
CMS take a lot of this stuff into consideration. Some of, you know, some the rebuttable presumption, they obviously did not, but <clears throat> the, re the reception so far to what's been produced has been great. We're thrilled that they're able to get it out the door before this administration ends. Um, and the response, I think, from the, the industry has been favorable. And the response on Capitol Hill has been favorable. We've, we've had members of Congress from both parties um, praise uh, the administration's work on Stark and, and anti-kickback. So um, it's been great. It's been great. Now, it's as, as you well know, um, they're both long and very convoluted and confusing. So mm -hmm. we're, uh, we're still working through it. And we may not be as thrilled uh, once we are able to analyze um, you know, the, the details of it. But um, no, to this point, we're, 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 really, we're really pleased. Okay, great. Well, thank you for that update. I know that um, Paul Render has been uh, digesting and processing those rules since they came out and hosted a, a webinar in a roundtable format that kind of discussed uh, these final rules. And if any listeners of the podcast are interested in that webinar, it is, is available on our website at hallrender.com. So take a look at that. And John, can you tell us about the COVID special package? What is this and what should we expect from this? Yeah, there's, there's two things that are happening right now um, as far as legislation on Capitol Hill is concerned. One, um, funding for the federal government expires on December 11th. Congress funds the federal government on an annual basis. And the last funding legislation expires on December the 11th. So Congress must renew that um, or else uh, we begin to default on our, on our, on our loans and, and, and a whole lot of other nasty things happen. So they've got to deal with that on the one hand. The other thing is, is obviously just COVID relief and what are they going to do? And that has been in a real big stalemate uh, for weeks. Um, even since the election, uh, there hasn't been a lot of action on COVID. That's changed significantly in just the last 48 hours. Um, and so in the last 48 hours, um, obviously we know that government funding has got to get done and appropriators on the, on the Capitol Hill are working through that right now. Um, we don't know what the funding levels for each federal agency are gonna be. Um, we, we know that some things might get added to that uh, non-COVID related. Uh, for example, there's talk about trying to put surprise medical billing legislation into the urine package. I know people are lobbying for that. I don't think they're going to be successful because there still isn't consensus in the House of Representatives on what that should be. Um, but I just want to let everybody know that it is out there. Um, but what we're now hearing in the last 48 hours is that the leadership on Capitol Hill wants to use the government funding bill as a vehicle, what we call a vehicle, to put all the COVID relief language into. And so what you've seen this week is you've seen different pockets come out with their own COVID proposals. So for example, on the one hand, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has, has, uh, has re-released really um, what the Senate passed back in September with some adjustments to funding levels for things like unemployment insurance and PPP. Um, he's tweaked those a little bit, but otherwise it, it essentially remains the same. What everybody is really talking about in the last 24 hours is this bipartisan group of senators 
uh, and also members of what's called the House Problem Solvers Caucus, which is 50 members from both parties in the House. They have come together and reached the, the framework of, of a deal um, that would provide $908 billion in COVID relief. Um, and that would be spread out um, in, in a lot of different areas. Uh, again, it's the framework right now. So uh, Washington is very much a devil is in the details type of place. So we're really not gonna know where they are until they reduce it to what we call you know, legislative language. They put it in bill form. Um, but right now they're talking about uh, an extra $300 a week add-on for unemployment insurance, which is lower than the 600 that's been you know, in existence for quite some time. More money for PPP, um, a temporary liability shield, um, which I know a lot of hospitals and other providers are interested in, as well as a whole bunch of different industries. Um, 50 billion for vaccine distribution. We're also hearing that there's 35 billion in there that would go into the CARES Act Provider Relief Fund. So in other words, more money for hospitals. Now, that's in the Problem Solvers Caucus bill, this bipartisan proposal, and I can't even call it a bill because it's not a bill yet. Um, that's in there. That's not in McConnell's proposal. And then on the other hand, we've got um, Speaker Pelosi talking to Treasury Secretary Mnuchin about um, a deal between them and the White House. So there's a lot of moving parts to all of this. But I think what I can say is we've, we've, we're seeing more action on COVID relief in the last 48 hours than we've seen in the last month. And there's a recognition in Washington that they've got to get something done. And no group of people play chicken more than the members of Congress. That's why everything gets done at the last second. So as I sit here right now, I think there is a good chance that you're going to see targeted COVID relief be part of the year end spending bill that gets passed on December the 11th. But I could be wrong. <laughs> God knows I have been before. So well, I we never know until that. we know, right? So right. exactly. Exactly. Interesting. Um, well, let's shift then to a hospital focus. You said potentially this problem solvers bill could have uh, earmarked $35 billion towards hospitals, maybe something like the CARES Act type funding that we've seen. But what should hospitals expect, um, even up, you know, not necessarily through December 11th or in the next coming weeks, but in the next few years as the administration changes? Um, and kind of a, a second question on that, what is the future of the 340B drug pricing program? So in terms of the Biden administration's healthcare priorities and Capitol Hill are concerned, um, it's gonna come down to what happens in the Georgia runoffs in January. Um, there are two seats that need to be filled out from there. Uh, if Republicans hold at least one of those two seats, uh, which it, I expect that they will at least one, perhaps two, um, they'll keep control of the Senate. Um, Republican control of the Senate means things like Medicare for all, adding a public option to the ACA, the Green New Deal, things that, that President-elect Biden talked about a lot on the campaign trail are complete non-starters. They're just, they're not going to happen. Republicans in the Senate will never go for that. So the focus then shifts to what a Biden administration can do from a regulatory perspective. And that is gonna focus a lot right out of the gate on, on undoing a lot of what the Trump administration has done uh, from a regulatory perspective. 
And I think one of the first things, well, the first thing that you're gonna see happen because it happens in every administration is the incoming chief of staff, uh, who in this case is Ron Klein, is gonna issue a memorandum to all federal agencies instructing them to freeze work on any unfinished rule. So that's gonna take place first. So if, if something isn't done by that point, then it's gonna get frozen. Um, and when I say done, it means that there's gotta be a certain amount of time too for implementation that has to, to, to pass. So if that clock hasn't run, then that's gonna be uh, a problem for a lot of unfinished rules. And again, every administration does that. The second thing I think you're gonna see happen is, is that Biden is gonna do what Trump did in terms of going to the Oval Office on the day that he's sworn in and start issuing some executive orders. Um, and I think that one of the first executive orders you're gonna see is gonna be directed at what's gonna be his biggest priority and that's shoring up the ACA. So I think you're gonna see Biden issue an executive order that reopens enrollment for the Affordable Care Act. My understanding is that closes on December the 15th, but Biden can use an, the public health emergency as an excuse, a reason, justification um, for issuing an executive order to immediately reopen enrollment uh, for the Affordable Care Act. Um, so there's, there's one thing that he could do. Um, he could also, um, start using the public health emergency to direct monies to things like uh, increased marketing for enrollment, um, funding navigators to help with enrollment. These are things that the Trump administration drained money from. They didn't market enrollment. Um, it was their way of trying to starve the ACA to death. So you're gonna see Biden reverse those. Um, one of the interesting things that people are, are, are talking about is whether or not he can actually move money around from different federal agencies um, to do things like increase subsidies for the ACA uh, without having to go to Congress in order to do that, um, or even to go through the, to the rulemaking process to do that. And I think you're gonna see the Biden administration look to some of the Trump moves, administration moves for, uh, around things like the border wall, where the Trump administration moved money around internally from agency to agency in order to fund construction of the border wall because Congress wouldn't fund it. So I think you're gonna see the Biden administration sort of use that precedent to, to try to, to do things like, like increase, uh, increase subsidies. Beyond that, Actions to reverse other Trump administration regulations are gonna to have to go through the traditional rulemaking process. So that means notice and comment. That means it takes time, right? That could take up to a year in some cases. So if you wanna talk about things like reversing the funding cuts for Planned Parenthood or other abortion providers, rolling back the contraception mandate coverage stuff from the ACA, uh, the anti-discrimination rules for transgender patients, even eliminating the Medicaid work requirements in some states, which were done under waiver that's gonna take time if they wanna to try to reverse those things. So the Biden administration is gonna have their hands full uh, from an administrative standpoint, uh, undoing what they wanna undo uh, from, from the Trump administration. So that's sort of where the focus is gonna be and it could be for the first couple of years. Um, mm -hmm. Beyond that, what they want to do from a regulatory perspective is kind of a guessing game right now because nobody really knows because there's just so much to do uh, in terms of rolling back the, the, the Trump administration's regulations. 
Okay. Um, well, thanks for your thoughts on that. And definitely sounds like there is, is a lot to do. Um, I know that some of our listeners are likely uh, pretty interested in the future of the 340B drug pricing program. Right. Do you have any intel on what may be happening with that in the short term and the long term? Well, I, I think as a general rule, um, the Biden administration is going to be much more favorable to 340B than the Trump administration has been. It's, it's, it's no secret in Washington that pharma hates 340B. And they took advantage of the, I guess, if you will, pro-business position of the Trump administration to try to really do damage to the 340B program. And you saw that with significant cuts to 340B and, and other regulatory actions. So I think, I think the 340B entities can, can feel more comfortable that they're not going to get additional cuts from a Biden administration. They could see a rollback of some of the cuts that were made uh, by the Trump administration. Um, and just a general overall positive attitude or more positive attitude towards 340B. Um, it, it's a controversial issue on Capitol Hill too. Um, and you know the, the overall growth of the program in the last 10 years has gotten an awful lot of attention. So I think you're still gonna see folks in Washington looking at issues like transparency within 340B program. Where does your money go? Um, I know that we've gotten that question a lot uh, from members of Congress when we would go to the Hill to represent our 340B clients. Um, simply tell me where your money goes. Where does the money go? What do you spend the money on? Um, I don't think that's going to go away necessarily, but I, I think that the Biden administration is going to be much, much less likely to, to propose additional cuts to 340B. Thanks for your thoughts on that, John. And do you foresee any additional challenges or restrictions in regard to physician-owned hospitals? This is another controversial issue in Washington. And I know that we saw some relaxing of the rules, right, in, in, during COVID, um, during the pandemic. Um, let me put it to you this way. When Republicans controlled the White House, the House, and the Senate, if they were not able to roll back the moratorium on physician-owned hospitals, I don't know how it's going to happen otherwise. Mm -hmm. um, you know, American Hospital Association and a whole host of others are adamantly opposed to that. It is a huge issue for them, and they will lobby hard against any, any rollback of that moratorium. And that moratorium, you gotta remember, right? It was part of the ACA. So Democrats are not in favor of rolling back uh, physician-owned hospital moratoriums. So uh, unfortunately for folks in, in that sector, I, I really don't see any changes um, coming. That, that train kind of left the station um, when Republicans were in control and they didn't get anything done. I've got a couple more topics here. Two more questions I'd like to ask you, John. Sure. Um, so have you heard anything on the life sciences front? And do you anticipate there will be more or less funding from the National Institutes of Health? Um, you know, everything is gonna focus around the pandemic, right? And so um, NIH is one of those entities in Washington that's 
as, as much as anything can be non-controversial because lawmakers can make anything controversial these days, um, it's NIH. And NIH has, has really had fairly broad support um, amongst both parties for quite a long time. Um, you know, when, when we've seen healthcare funding bills come off of Capitol Hill, um, you see, you know, cuts to site neutral payments and, and, and these other things, but for some reason, not for some reason, for the reason that people like the NIH on Capitol Hill, it gets more money. So I, I do think that you're going to see more money go into, into NIH um, during a Biden administration. I think there's a lot of support for that. And, and so you're going to see much more of the life sciences get, get support as well. Will there be ACA challenges under a conservative majority court? Well, I, I think you're one of the things that you're going to see, and this happens with the change of any administration, right, is that um, you're going to have new folks at the Department of Justice. And how DOJ goes about participating in ACA-related lawsuits is going to change. Um, when the Trump administration came in, and, and it was a, a Republican Department of Justice, they took a different position. There were, there were lawsuits they were, they were pursuing that they just dropped. Um, because it didn't serve their political purposes anymore. Mm -hmm. So you're going to see a democratic, democratically run DOJ um, do the same thing as far as the ACA is concerned. So they're not going to take any litigation position that's going to undermine the ACA. Now, what Republican attorneys generals across the country are going to do, um, it could be a different story. Um, the, you know, we all know that there was oral argument before the court last month. Um, no one really believes that the ACA is going to be taken down in its entirety. That's much more of a political issue that was, was put out during the campaign. We should get that opinion next year. So it's really going to be up to Republicans at the state level to decide what lawsuits go forward uh, against the ACA and that might reach the Supreme Court. Um, because the Democrats are, are, are not going to do it. Um, it, it. It's long been a political issue. Um, and I don't see Democrats um, doing anything that is going to, uh, to undermine that uh, in the future. So I would be surprised if we get much more um, ACA related legislation, excuse me, litigation um, before the Supreme Court uh, in the next four years. Okay. Well, thanks for your thoughts on that as well, John. I feel like we've covered a lot of ground today and I've learned a lot um, and I know you have a wealth of knowledge. So thanks so much for sharing it with me and with our listeners today. For folks that tuned in, if you would like to pick John's brain or my brain, please feel free to reach out to us. Uh, John's email is jwilliams at hallrender.com and mine is lpark at hallrender.com. And as always, if you have any topics you'd like to hear covered on the podcast, please feel free to email me directly. Thanks for your time today, John. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in.